Start the Week with Tim and Damo on the Unmade Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Tim Burrows. As we record, it's just before 7am on Monday morning in Sydney. And it's getting on for 10 o'clock on Sunday night in London. Today, crunch time for Foxtel. Martin Sorrell's biggest crisis. Will Amazon swoop in for the Olympics? And Clive Palmer's mega ad. Hey, Damo, I'm trying to get the balance right. As we were saying, it's Sunday night for me. I, I always find after I record this, I'm a little bit full of adrenaline. So I struggle to go straight to sleep. So I've tried to balance it out. I've got my cup of sleepy time tea, which I've just poured. So I'm hoping that it doesn't sort of make me crash during the podcast, that I stay awake to uh, to make it through. But anyway, your weekend is already over. How was yours? It is over. We had sunshine in Sydney, so I'm pretty happy with uh, with that. Warm weather today, everything's looking rosy. But I, I've just realised we've gone into, oh, we, we've gone out of daylight savings. You've gone into it, so it's even later for you uh, at the moment. Yeah, the time difference is even now. And although we are uh, technically in spring in the UK, um, we had flurries of snow over the last few days, which um, is kind of, you know, picturesque but perhaps i've just become old and curmudgeonly because um i just got grumpy about it being cold and sleety anyway where shall we start this week well there's a lot to get through this week where shall we start how about tim we start on the continued speculation on foxtel's ipo there's a lot more that's been happening recently with that zoe samios in the sydney morning herald in the age has covered off a few more details with if it happens, an expectation that it will happen uh, before the end of the month. Uh, added to that, of course, uh, News Corp uh, CEO Rob Thompson was in town in Melbourne. Uh, so there's a lot happening at the moment. Tim, maybe you want to get us a bit more up to date with where that's at because it's coming to crunch point. We are beginning to hit a crunch point with the Foxtel IPO uh, when Robert Thompson arrives in town when any of the Murdochs uh, arrive in town, it's never for nothing. So the fact that he was around, the fact that the Foxtel board had a meeting suggests that decisions have either been made or are very close to being made on whether they will float or not. As Zoe Samuels reported, as you said, um, she suggested the decision will be made before the end of the month if they're going to get a float away for Foxtel before the end of this financial year, so before the end of June. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you've uh, emphasised very correctly the if. A lot of analysts, and again, Zoe's mentioned this in the piece, a lot of analysts uh, suggesting that this may not happen, uh, particularly in the streaming wars, there's a few key pieces that are kind of against the opportunity for Foxtel here to successfully float, particularly when it comes to HBO. Um, do you see this getting off the ground? Are, are we coming to a fizzle at the end of the month rather than an explosion? Look, I'm, I, you know, I guess I'd love to be wrong, but I called it a couple of weeks back that I thought the mm. moment had gone. Uh, there, there is, as you say, uncertainty about whether they'd be able to retain the HBO deal because uh, the Warner or, or Time Warner, uh, who own HBO, are going through a merger with Discovery, who have their own floating plans. So that means 
either no renewal or a very expensive renewal. So that's one piece of headwind. The other big piece of headwind is the markets just don't like streamers as much at the moment. You know, they, they don't like the heavy investment that has to go in in order to win. So the markets have turned against streaming globally. You know, we saw uh, Netflix when they said they needed to invest some more, their share price took a hit. Paramount's share price took a hit locally when Nine's boss Mike Sneesby said that Stan was going to have to do uh, some more investing. That took a hit. So you've got that. And then the other thing is the tap has turned off on IPOs anyway. Compared to the same time a year ago, there were just far fewer floats going on. So my guess is it's it's probably not going to happen. They're going to have to find another route. And the problem for the two owners in News Corp and in Telstra is what to do about that, because there's a couple of billion dollars of debt, uh, not all of which is owed to the bank. Some of it is owed to the shareholders, in particular to News Corp. But they they want to find a way of unlocking that. So we are at the crunch time, but I I think the moment has been missed. But if that is the case, we'll find out very soon. Yeah, for media and marketing aficionados, if you didn't see over the weekend, Scott Galloway shared a, a very interesting graph on LinkedIn about how streamers uh, were doing in terms of uh, th- those listed in the US. Uh, worth going to his LinkedIn uh, feed to, to have a look at that one because it is quite alarming as you as you say, Tim. Obviously, those are for the US uh, companies, but um, it seems to be a bit of a global situation uh, at the moment. Uh, one of the interesting things that happened recently, which may affect this as well, is the fact that Telstra now has a new CEO in Vicky Brady, who was uh, formerly the CFO at Telstra. Um, our, uh, our our friends over at Fear and Greed uh, had a, a great podcast on, on that, discussing, uh, I guess, the solidarity at, at Telstra to be able to bring the CFO into the CEO role. But in your mind, Tim, looking at then the media industry, could that have an effect on whether this uh, float of Foxtel gets off the ground? Look, the fact that she is a Telstra insider suggests that she was a part of the existing strategy, of which my guess is probably for Telstra to back away from Foxtel. That seems to be the appetite for them, at the very least, to sell down, if not get out altogether. Um, and of course, at the same time, and again, this is alluded to in the Sydney Morning Herald and Age article today, uh, it, it looks like it's fairly likely that Telstra is going to take a stake in Fetch, which is effectively the aggregation service, which is a potential competitor. So that certainly seems to suggest that uh, that Telstra at the moment is not particularly interested in taking the lead role in Foxtel. Next, the wheels fall off for Sir Martin Sorrell. Made. Sir Martin Sorrell and S4 Capital have had a very difficult week, it, it has to be said, with the share prices dropping 30% off the back of PwC's inability to uh, get its audit complete of the business. There's been a lot of talk and a lot of conjecture about this uh, over the last few days in the media globally. You, of course, Tim, were uh, looking out for those results to, to drop and we were both waiting and waiting and, and nothing really happened. How serious is this? 
4, Sir Martin, and S4. Yeah, look, the first thing to say is we don't know exactly what has happened. So S4 Capital, uh, owner of the, I guess, the, the brand we would know best, Media Monks. Uh, they also had Mighty Hive, all that since since been merged into Media Monks. Um, this is Sir Martin Sorrell's attempt to create another global holding company. So he was the the founder of WPP, where he worked for more than 30 years before being ousted in very acrimonious circumstances. Um, over the last three years or so, it was an absolute rocket ship. The way he got it off the ground was investing about $50 million of his own money and some more investors' money uh, to, to get going, and then acquiring companies through merger. So broadly, issuing shares, which means, of course, you don't need to be buying for cash then. Now, this is where the big strategic problem comes up. Once Sir Martin and S4 Capital gets beyond whatever the problem of last week was. Problem of last week being um, PwC had been uh, due to return the final version of the audit on the company's annual accounts, so their 2021 numbers. Uh, initially, we'd been expecting them a couple of weeks ago. Then they said they'd be at the end of the week just gone. And then at the last, they said, actually, they weren't going to be coming out. Now, the longer it goes on, the less this seems like something routine, and it really is not that routine, you know. It, it is worth labouring on that, isn't it? It's it's twice now it's been delayed, and I, I believe the first uh, sort of reasoning for that was was COVID, and then it's now become that that the inability to complete the ordinance sounds very much like S4's quite annoyed, and PwC doesn't want to do anything that that wouldn't be in its best interest, and. There's a lot of speculation about that as well in terms of how serious this issue actually is. But, um, you know, it doesn't sound like something that's going to be fixed anytime soon. Yeah, let's be clear. The job of the auditor is to look at the accounts and to be happy that the numbers own up. They, as an independent auditor, although they're being paid by this organisation, are putting their credibility behind the numbers. Now, there's been a lot of speculation what it is in the numbers that PwC potentially doesn't like. Um, obviously, a lot of companies have been you know, brought into the fold through merger, so it could be some of the numbers from one of the companies that um, S4C has inherited. We don't know that bit yet. Um, but the important thing is the share price fell. The share price fell by about thirty percent. So, you know that's that that you know that's a hit in hundreds of million. Well, in fact, you know more than a billion. Um, so it, that's a significant difference. Now, of course, share prices go up and down, but the problem for S four C's strategy is because it finds these new agencies to take into the fold through merger that relies on the shareholders of these companies, the owners of these companies having faith that if they swap ownership for shares in S4 capital, that value will keep going up. And what we've seen over the last few days is that value fall by 30%. And suddenly that just changes the whole model. And that I think is, the big question is, is, what does that model look like now? And that's really tricky. 
So that's really interesting. That's a, a big question. Let me ask you for a, a big answer then in your crystal ball gazing, because you did write about this in, in Best of the Week. And if you haven't uh, read that yet, uh, go on to unmade.media to have a look at that, which dropped on Saturday morning and is the, the top story on, on the website at the moment. Uh, but Tim, if you are now an agency that's been courted by S4, let's say the best case scenario happens the audit gets done and everything's ship shape. It was just, uh, just a delay. What sort of damage does this do long-term, if any, in terms of S4 courting new agencies, new businesses become part of the group? Well, if it's my agency, I would ask for cash, not shares. Which essentially turns the business model upside down. Correct. Will Amazon snatch the Olympics? That's coming up next. Made. So interesting speculation in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age today, Damien, pointing out that the streamers, and we talk about Amazon in particular, might be able to grab the Olympics from perhaps from under the noses of the free to airs. Yeah, that's correct, Tim. It's very much speculation at the moment, but that was, uh, again, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, Zoe Samios, uh, quoting the words of Tyler Byrne, who is Prime's head of content, Amazon Prime, uh, and when asked whether they would make a play for the Olympics, said, uh, we look at every opportunity that comes to market we do have an appetite for additional sporting rights, but what will be our next sports property after swimming? Question mark. Uh, we don't know yet. It just depends on what the opportunity is, where it falls within our slate and our programming calendar, and obviously economics and how competitive it is. So it wasn't necessarily a yes, we're going to go for the rights to the Olympics, but it certainly wasn't shutting it down. Now, this is quite interesting because the next, uh, I guess, rights phase will include the Brisbane 2032 uh, Olympics. Seven has first right of refusal, and we've been chatting about that, and the media industry has been chatting about that for quite some time, expecting that Seven at some stage would make an announcement about whether they had that or, or not. We're going to take that up. Nothing uh, has happened yet. Uh, so it's interesting to hear the, the streaming giants, or this streaming giant in particular, suggesting that they may be interested in it if it happens. And there's a lot of complexity around that for the Australian market in, in particular, in that you have the, the anti-siphoning rules from 1992, which essentially is about main sports uh, being available to be viewed by everyone, which means free-to-air obviously has to have a, a, a large stake in that. But this goes to the broader picture, I guess, of the complexities of streamers, the amount of money that they have to, to splash around. Amazon Prime has huge amounts of money to, to spend on rights of all kinds, not, not just sports, and the Olympics would be great. They've already spent a, a large amount of money on sports globally as well, including the, the NFL, the English Premier League, ATP tennis. There's a lot that they've invested in. In Australia, we've got the swimming and, and smaller sports like that, but uh, they have been known to make big splashes globally. This could be the next one, but uh, Seven still has that opportunity to, to take the rights first. We haven't heard that they, they haven't as yet, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Do you think, Tim, that in all seriousness, we could see Amazon Prime become 
the broadcaster of the Olympics over the, the next few runnings? Couple of steps there, I think. First, as I understand it, it's the, the, the ball is still in the court of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. So certainly as of a few days ago, they hadn't yet kicked off the tender. Next cab off the ramp, and it's only or oh, two years away now, is Paris. Now, that's not in a great time zone for Australian broadcasters. Then we go to the US, also not a great time zone, but then Brisbane, which is the big prize. So that's the Australian context. Uh, and probably in order to get Brisbane, they're going to have to get a couple of sort of uh, average sign-ups as well. So that's one part of it. Second part, this will be the first rights deal that could truly be done on a global level. Now, I haven't yet seen any indication of that, but a lot of the streamers now in particular are global players. So could we potentially see one global all rights deal? My guess is they may not do that yet because they might not be able to quite squeeze the value out in every single territory by doing it that way because not all of the streamers are everywhere just yet. Um, you know, most of them have got sort of gaps in their footprints, etc. cetera. Uh, then, as you say, anti-siphoning, and it's worth just nailing that point a, a bit. So that really has been, um, I guess, served a couple of masters, really. One of which is to keep sport live to air for the public, which is what they want, free to air, so they don't have to pay for a subscription. And that was designed in the days of Foxtel. So the laws are written around Foxtel as a pay TV broadcaster. So there's a big loophole, which potentially lets the streamers in as it stands at the moment. Although I suspect there will be quite a big appetite from whoever makes the next government, whether it's Labour or Coalition, to close that loophole if it looks like something as significant as the Olympics were going to go behind it. And of course, the streamers are kind of aware of that at a local level. So much more likely in that circumstance, I think, will be them pairing up with a local free-to-air player. Unless, of course, you know, we're talking about Paramount who own uh, 10 anyway. So that potentially gives them it. But uh, but yeah, I um, as it happens, this particular conversation has been with Amazon Prime's uh, local people who have been picking up rights. But I suspect it's something that pretty much any of the streamers would say, maybe with the exception of Netflix, who don't really tend to carry sport. But most of the rest would say they look at every opportunity as it comes up. Next. Clive Palmer's big election media buy. Unmade. Let's turn to the Australian's media diary. A very interesting piece uh, this morning, Tim. What was in it? Yeah, look, there's a there's a few bits and pieces, but the one that most captures my eye, and this is uh, Nick Tabakoff's diary for the Australian, is you know we are days now from an election being called. I was half expecting it to happen over the weekend, but it, it hasn't. There was another uh, news poll out this morning, which um, shows uh, Labour uh, hanging on to its its, its lead in, in first party preference and uh, Scott Morrison's uh, negative approval rating still, um, which I guess you could call a disapproval rating, still being pretty uh, bad for him. But um, one of the kind of, I guess, random effects in politics at the moment is 
the uh, billionaire mining magnate and uh, political player Clive Palmer, who, of course, uh, has been heavily advertising the United Australia Party. And um, it would seem that he has created a mini doc or had created for him a mini documentary about him. Now, clearly, this will be such a kind of hagiography, if you pronounce it that way. I'm not even sure if you do. Hagiography or hagiography? Yeah, that's a good quote. Don't look Probably at me. Doesn't matter Don't look at me for the whole thing. Let's go with the hagiography. Anyway, um, he apparently has talked to all three free-to-air players, or his media agency has, and they've accepted the booking. So that will be in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of what sounds like ratings kryptonite um you know who's going to actually want to sit on that uh, without tuning over so once it goes out i would love to see the minute by minute ratings as people turn off from that but you know he'll also be putting a lot of dollars in the way of the tv networks as will all of the uh political parties of course you know we're about to see a big spending bonanza on that side of things so um yeah it looks like clive palmer will out, will outspend the others as he has been doing um whether that actually impacts the outcome we'll have to wait and see look it's worth noting tim that this is not a an original idea this has happened before i remember when i was at ad news uh, in 2012 and uh, mcdonald's did a, a documentary uh, mcdonald's gets grilled and we all sort of sat back in fascination and, and also horror in how a brand could put together a, a, a TV show and throw it on, on TV and would anyone actually watch? And for for all of us sitting in amazement, hey, it, it, it kind of paid off. So this is not uh, original by any means. And as we know... Look- and hey, look, and I, I must admit, I didn't find it a horror. I disagree with you on that point. At the time, it felt like good content marketing to me. Mm. Where the lines were blurred, I think, and hopefully they'll be less blurry on this one, was if I remember rightly, although McDonald's agreed to take some advertising with the networks... In theory, that content was free. So they were just being given a piece of content they were choosing to air. Now, of course, there mm. was there was obviously far more going on behind the scenes, but it wasn't effectively, this is if I remember rightly, a 30-minute piece of advert at 30 seconds, usual rate, times it, uh, times it by 60 for the full half hour. Um, so I suspect this one will be different in terms of, at the very least, how much money the networks are asking for it. Like I was uh, about to say, Mr. Palmer's not shy and splashing a bit of cash either. He's spent huge amounts of money on his uh, political campaigns. So uh, this will just be a, a, probably a drop in the ocean uh, for him. Next, how Netflix helped Formula One get big again. So finally, Damo, I stumbled upon a brand new email newsletter, which launched just this morning, actually, Australian time. Uh, The first piece from Nathan Bohr, I presume it's pronounced Bohr, he spells his name B-A-U-G-H. Nathan Bohr's World Builders looks at how a brand brand new media strategy changed the game for Formula One. So uh, rather than drive to survive, uh, drive to thrive? That was a, a fantastic dad joke, Tim. Well done. But yeah, you're right on top of things. A new email newsletter comes out and you've already read it. 
So I talked about uh, a, a number of the points which actually allowed uh, Drive to Survive to to gain a, a bigger audience share for Formula One. There are a number of points in there, but one of them was uh, finding uh, the, the competitor stories w- within the sport. And now, what do we mean by the competitor stories? Well, look, one of the things that it's done very well is, you could argue, create conflict where perhaps conflict doesn't actually exist, but that's the the, the beauty of it. Uh, it. It was listing the the duels between people like Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo, which was somewhat genuine, uh, but in the latest series, uh, Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris, which... Uh, you could argue is very much not genuine and, and more of a beat up. So it's sort of brought Hollywood um, to Formula One in a way that we've never really seen before. So for the non-Formula One fans, what they were doing was they were finding kind of backstories going on at the back end of the grid and creating that sort of conflict there as part of the storytelling that wasn't necessarily obvious to the typical sort of casual Formula One viewer so that they they were just becoming a it was a bit it was becoming a bit of a soap opera and how they told the story and therefore building up the interest yeah absolutely and this is where i find it really interesting with drive to survive and formula one and it goes back to when liberty media in 2016 bought formula one uh the ceo then bernie eccleston who, who owned uh part of formula one he left uh, that position in 2017 and Formula One was seen as sort of a dinosaur in terms of its media. Access to drivers was really difficult. Uh, they didn't really play on social media at all. And, and Eccleston himself said, I go for an older fan base because they have the money. I don't want to go for a younger fan base. Now, hey, I, look, I don't agree with that, uh, but this is what happened. So for Liberty Media, opening up Formula One to the masses, particularly in American, influential American market, was one of the things they really wanted to do very quickly. Uh, Drive to Survive uh, was not necessarily their idea. This was Netflix working with them, coming to them uh, with an opportunity. And uh, I think this newsletter has essentially said this is one of the best content marketing plays ever that Formula One doesn't actually have to pay for. They're getting paid uh, to have this uh, be made. But I I, f- I feel that we're at a, a sort of tipping point now as to how far can Formula One actually go to, to uh, produce this sort of Hollywood drama. It's been a fantastic case study up until now uh, in terms of reaching audiences, bringing in uh, new people from new markets with new levels of spend. And as a result, new sponsors with, with big dollars behind them. But hey, having a quick look at Rotten Tomatoes before the the uh, rating on season four of Drive to Survive has sort of fallen off a, a cliff. It's at um, 16% approval rating at, at the moment where the last seasons were, season three was uh, 54%, season two, 84%, season one was 90%. So I do wonder whether we've hit the, the dramatization limit and perhaps this is a good case study for other brands out there as to where the uh, maybe the buck stops. Well, this is the really interesting thing, isn't it, about other other certainly other sports codes is we're beginning to see people recognising what's really working for them and that if giving decent access 
to um, streaming services or other media companies, if that storytelling can capture the public's imagination, then we're you know we're seeing a bunch of uh, kind of the soccer uh, codes around the world are beginning to pop up on the likes of Amazon Prime, for instance, and one or two other places on Netflix as well, actually. So it does feel like other codes are waking up to this is a whole new way of rethinking that already quite interesting relationship between sporting code and media company. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's fascinating. It's kind of, it's been right there in front of us, but until I read this piece on world builders today, the penny hadn't quite dropped for me on just what a game changer this one has been for formula one. Thanks to Netflix. Ma- massive, massive game change. But as I say, I, I don't think you can underestimate everything else that's gone on around it because there has been a lot going on around it. Liberty essentially started from scratch. But to your point, there's been some great sports docuseries out there. Uh, hey, if you haven't watched it, Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix, there's my my tip for the week. Well, that is it for today. We'd love to hear what you think of everything we've been talking about at letters at unmade.media. That's letters at unmade.media. And there'll be another edition of the Unmade email on Wednesday and the next edition of the Unmade podcast will drop on Thursday with the next chapter of the audio version of Tim's book, Media Unmade. We're getting to the final chapters now of Media Unmade. It's chapter 23 this week, looking at the battle for ownership of Prime. Now, if you haven't given us a rating in the podcast catcher of your choice, please do so. It does help other people find us and listen in. Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Toodle pet. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.